0: Oh, good morning. I'll uh, I'll add my welcome to Travis's. My name's Wilson. I've met a handful of you here, but it's really good, really, really good to be here. Um, so thanks for having me this morning. Um, you already don't trust me because uh, of that terrifying gospel passage that we picked out. It's like, dude, you're a guest preacher. Pick, you know, pick something comforting. What is going on with that? Um, and we'll get there. We'll get there this morning. Uh... Today our, readings, today our readings have us fast forward to the very end of all things. The very end. And when God wants to depict the great end of history, the culmination of all of his faithfulness to every promise that he has ever made, how does he do it? How does God in the, in the Bible depict uh, the end of all things? And he does it using the imagery of a meal. So 700 years before Jesus even came on the scene, God's people were already anticipating that this is how it would all end, right? That's our reading from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. He'll swallow up death and wipe away every tear at at this great feast. And then in the very last pages of the Bible, Revelation 19, what we read, hallelujah, the marriage of the lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we have Jesus telling this terrifying parable, right? And all of a sudden, it's obviously the same wedding banquet that we read about in Isaiah and that we read about in Revelation. But now there's this note of warning that is blaring over the entire lovely scene. And I don't know about you, but this is like one of those parables that you just kind of want to skip over. And all of a sudden, I I feel nervous about this feast instead of excited about it. Why does Jesus tell us this parable? Well, Let me suggest, he he tells this parable because at any cost, he would not have us miss out. There will come a day when all history will end. Not with a bang and not with a whimper, but with a fresh beginning. World without end, a feast of joy and laughter. There will come a day when the great questions really will have an answer, where joy will swallow up grief. It's hard to even begin to imagine that there is some joy, there is some healing that will finally silence evil the evil of a mass shooting, that that will finally silence the grief of the death of someone you love, or many things that never make a headline or maybe never even make a conversation with another person, right? That internal, that restless angst that every single human being carries within them, that search for happiness and for consolation that we are all on. Someday, someday, there will be a great resolution to all those things, There will come a day when death is swallowed up in victory, a feast day, and Jesus would by no means have you miss out on that day. He would woo you, and he does many times. He would say harsh and difficult words, and he does. He would give his own life, and he did. So what I really want to show today what I really want to show today is that the resounding theme of this parable, believe it or not, is joy. It really is. And the reason that this parable stinks is because in the parable, again and again, people are rejecting the offer of eternal joy. And so in light of that, we've got, I've got one question I want us to ask us today, and it's this. How do we participate in the great wedding feast of joy? How do we participate in it? Okay, first, uh, the first thing we're going to see is that we accept the gracious invitation. So to participate in the feast, we accept the gracious invitation. Okay, now look, a very important part of this parable is not missing uh, very important details. So this is the case with all of Jesus' stories. There is not one detail uh, that is there by mistake or that can be passed over, right? They're very carefully told. So I want you to put yourself uh, in the shoes of one of the servants that's standing next to this king who's about to give this great banquet. So look with me at verse 2 if you've got a Bible in front of you. Uh, Verse 2 of Matthew 22. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, so put yourself in the scene. You're there. You're in the middle of the hustle and bustle of things. The lights are going up. The food is getting prepared. It smells amazing. There's last second things. Uncle, you know, Robert, whatever, was supposed to bring this, and he's still not here, so you send out somebody else to go grab it. And there's, like, the buzz of excitement right before the wedding happens, okay? You're there. And so the king then gives the order for the servants to go out and tell everybody it's ready. We're ready. Now, listen, this isn't just any guy inviting folks over for dinner. This isn't, I just, hey guys, I threw some burgers on the grill if y'all want to come over. This is a wedding feast for a king's son. So the RSVPs went out months ago. All this is, is letting people know it's ready. You guys can come on. And to be invited to the wedding feast of a king's son means you are a considerable guest of honor. So there's, there's no saying no to this, right? You go. Which is why what happens next is so shocking that the guests of honor reject the invitation. Verse 3, they would not come. Literally, they were not wanting to come. They just didn't want to. So just stop for a second and imagine. If you prepared a wedding feast for your child, which I would guess many of you have done this, right? And you sent out the word to everybody that's already RSVP'd, everything's ready, come on. And everybody just kind of said, I don't want to. Like, I'm going to go back to work. Or, ah, I'm busy today. Or, like, I'd rather do this other thing. I'm going to go on a hike. You know, that would be incredibly painful. It would be very hard. It'd be impossible not to read that as a personal insult. It'd be impossible not to read it as, I, I don't care about you or your family. But what happens next is equally shocking. The king sends out a second invite. Which would not have happened. Verse 4 Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. God is depicted here as he is again and again in Scripture, stooping down to a level of shameless vulnerability that most of us try very hard in our day to day lives to avoid. No one likes looking like a fool or being embarrassed. But God, if you, can map, if you can wrap your mind around this, God is okay with looking weak, even pathetic. If you read, this happens again and again throughout the prophets. The humility of God. Why? It's because so people can have every chance to join the feast. God will stoop down. And yet they reject him again. And they even kill his servants if you look at verse 5. And it's at that point that, uh, that we realize that the first level of understanding this parable is that it's just telling history. Straight up. Right? The nation of Israel are the guests of honor. They receive the first invites to the wedding feast of God's Son, Jesus the Messiah. And yet, as we read throughout all the Gospels, they reject this invitation. They reject this son. And the parable tells us the king got angry and burned their city. Well, in A.D. 70, the Romans came and burned the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and it was never rebuilt. Jesus is just telling in parable form what has been happening and what will happen in the imminent future. And that rejection is awful, but it's also the the chance for one of the most amazing moves in the plan of God. And it's that the invitation goes out to the ends of the earth. We see that in verse 9. The king tells the servants to head out to the roads and bring in just whoever will come in. And they do. They bring in whoever they can find, good and bad. And we see that play out in the Gospels. The people who come and eat with Jesus are people like Zacchaeus, thieves and swindlers. They're, They're prostitutes and sinners. They're the blind, the disabled, the people who are excluded from every other Influential and religious sector of life. Those are the people who come in and dine with Jesus while he's on earth. But then it's also people like Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man. It's also people like Nicodemus, a Pharisee with considerable religious influence. It's also the Roman centurion, an influential and powerful leader. The thing is, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is accepting this invitation. That God has given out. So, what makes a person want to accept God's invitation? What does this have to do with you and me? What, what does this have to do with the people in this room who today are hearing this invitation? What kind of posture of heart makes us desire to accept this? Well, let me suggest that among other things, it's a sense of hunger. It just begins with desire, begins with need. Remember, Matthew is the gospel in which Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. If you're hungry for something and it comes to you, despite you're not deserving it, then there's a sense of wonder. How did this happen? There's a sense of gratitude. Hunger, wonder, gratitude. That posture lends a person to accept the invitation. And that's why the first guests rejected it. They simply did, they did not want to come. They had other agendas. They had other priorities. Their own self-love, their own will to hold on to their own power shut them off from being able to even hear that good news of great joy had come on their doorstep. So, if you're here today and your sense of hunger has deadened, if it's just gone flat, and you're like, man, I've got no sense of wonder. I've, my, my gratitude is just like emptied out. If other things have, have taken over your heart and you know you should want this, you know you should throw off everything and run after Jesus, you know you should be, what, fired up for this, but you've just, it's just not there, then ask, ask God. Ask God for help. Remember how kind this king is. Remember how gracious he is. If you don't desire it, and we all get to that point in our regular lives, then desire to desire it. Just get in God's presence and and look at your life. What things are numbing my heart to not be able to hear the invitation into joy that I'm being given today? Maybe it's some things you're doing, maybe it's things that are completely outside of control that that are just numbing you. Whatever it is, it can be brought before the Lord And you can say, my soul is hungry and my soul is thirsty. Show me that it's for you. Show me that you are are the one place where I can find my hunger and my thirst satisfied. You can come to him in that way. The gracious invitation, wonder at it, stoke a desire for it, accept it. That's the first step. How do we participate in the great wedding feast? First is just accepting the invitation, right? And second... Second, we have to participate in transformation. So we accept the invitation and we have to participate in transformation. So if you thought the part of the parable where the, the king gets angry and the city gets burned was scary, you just skip down to 11 through 14 and that's even scarier, right? So the wedding hall is filled with guests and the king comes in to see, all right? It's actually the perfect word for judgment. It's just to observe, to, to look at what's going on, to examine. And he sees one man there without a wedding garment. And the man can't answer for this. And so the guy is bound up and he's thrown out where things are not good. Right? And then there's a warning that seems to threaten everything that we've just said. Few are called. Uh, many are called, but few are chosen. And the warning here really is razor sharp and I don't want to duck it. There's this focus on this one man in the party. And I, and I think that is to, for us to zoom in and look at ourselves and say, okay, hold on, and and consider well what's going on. But there are several things that can help us understand this, and understand how how Jesus isn't undoing everything else that he's about in his ministry. And the first thing is just to notice again why this guy gets thrown out. Notice, the guy does not get thrown out of the feast because he's a bad person. It says that the servants came and gathered the good and bad and brought them in, and the king did not come in and observe and find all the bad people and throw them out so that only the good people are left. That's not the way Jesus told it, right? There's one person singled out, and his, his offense is this, that he doesn't have a wedding garment on. So then the question, of course, is what is this wedding garment? If we follow the stream of how, um, like if, if this was like a whole series in Matthew right now, we we're just following the stream of how Matthew talks and how he presents the kingdom, we see that this garment really is about participating. It really is about participating in the kingdom. It really is a holy life, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and all the rest. And if there's any doubt, our our passage in Revelation made it clear. The bride is granted fine linen to wear, and then Revelation 19.8 says, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So how does this fit with everything we've said so far? Is this some sort of bait and switch? There's a gracious invitation, come as you are, all you have to do is receive, but then now that I'm here, I better earn it. Right? If I don't live up, then the king's going to come in and I'm going to get tossed out. But again, notice the important details. The garment is not the garment of dreary legalism. It is not the garment of anxious toil. Again, Jesus could have told it that way. He could have said the king came in and saw that one of the slaves was not wearing work clothes. And so he threw that slave out. And that's not the way Jesus told it. There was one person not wearing a wedding garment. And a wedding garment is first and foremost a garment of joy and celebration. I've, I've never met a bride who took no joy in getting ready for her wedding, even though it takes like hours, right? And even like you all have gone to weddings. Even when you're getting ready for a wedding, there's like you're looking good, right? You're looking fresh. Like there's sort of a joy getting ready for that wedding. It's, it's getting ready for the celebration, to celebrate this thing that's, that's going on. Um, my favorite picture of my wife, Callie, is this one right before our wedding where she's putting, her, uh, putting an earring in. And I love it because there's just like pure joy and peace on her face. And then she married me and it got real, but like there was this moment, you know, where she was at peace right before. There's one guest at this feast who was there, but had not joined in in any way on what the feast was actually about. The one without the wedding garment is the one who strangely accepted an invitation but refused to participate in any sort of transformation. I want the fringe benefits, but in the way I live my life, I want to center everything on myself. And so I'm not really a part of the King's Feast. Like the garment of my life is the works of the flesh and not the works of the spirit. It's, and it's actually a really strange and confusing state of mind that this person is in. And so when the king comes in and says, friend, just notice the kindness still of the king. That's, that's not a sarcastic or vindictive friend. That's genuine. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? It's actually a really good question. How are you at this banquet when you actually want nothing to do with this banquet how are you at this wedding and yet you're protesting the wedding you didn't even dress up for it Um, one writer put it so well we want this parable to stop at the inclusivity we want to hear that everyone is all right exactly as they are god loves us as we are and and doesn't want us to change it's true all the outsiders came to jesus the blind the lame the sinners His love reached them where they are, but his love refused to leave them where they were because love wants the best for the beloved. And so people's lives were transformed and they were healed and changed. God's kingdom is a kingdom in which love and justice and mercy and holiness reign unhindered. Those are the clothes that you need for the wedding. And if you refuse to put them on, you are saying that you don't want to stay at the party. That's the reality. Blind people did not stay blind when they met Jesus. Zacchaeus met the expulsive power of a greater love. He used to love money. He used to be a swindler. He used to be a a thief. And then he met Jesus. And he was no longer a thief after that. He was set free. So we'll end here. What's it look like to put on this wedding garment of transformation, joy, and celebration? There's the good news. It's not a dreary thing. It's walking in the light of life. It's walking in step with the Holy Spirit. So Philippians 2 verse 12 says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's working alongside with God. This is just the joy of having God in your life, guiding you, healing you. And can it be painful? Absolutely. Yeah, it can be painful to throw off the old dead ways. Like, it'll feel like death, but with Jesus, every time there is death, there is better resurrection, right on the other side of that. It's stepping out of our old rags of slavery and misery and into the wedding garment of joy and freedom and peace. Putting on the wedding garment is experiencing freedom over time. It's the feeling of getting clean. It's getting free from the hell of our own self-centeredness with all its anxiety and hatred and bitterness and loneliness. It's being freed from the dark forces and being transferred to the kingdom of, of God's Son, of His beloved Son. The parable is a warning. The parable is a warning. Take it seriously, but not in miserable, anxious self-effort. Absolutely not. It's open, opening yourself to God. It's receiving. It's working alongside with Him. These are all those, like, stay awake and be sober warnings that are in the New Testament. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin deaden you or numb you. And anytime you see it doing that, that's the, like, wake up get sober again. Like, this is numbing me. This is deadening me. Come back, right? When you fail every day, don't give up. Just get clean. It's like the parable of the prodigal son. We don't have to go all the way to a far country in the slot buckets before we come to our senses, you know? I think a lot of times our growing can be we just get to the back fence before we realize what we're doing and turn around. And we already know that the Father is running towards us, and so I'll leave you with this, to remember the words of Jude, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great what? Joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, uh, I thank you for this parable even though it is a, it's a difficult one to read and it's a sobering one. But Jesus, we trust you. You're the, you're the one that went to the cross for our sins and out of your great love for us. And Father, I pray that you would lead us in the way of life. I pray that we'd entrust ourselves to Jesus again and work with his Holy Spirit and experience his resurrection life and celebrate with you um, as a taste now in your kingdom celebrate with you in just a minute with a taste at this table of the great feast that we'll all sit at and celebrate together in your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.